If you look in any conventional medical textbook, you'll find the phrase, we just don't know, a whole lot. We just don't know what causes endometriosis. We just don't know what causes PCOS polycystic ovary syndrome. We just don't know what causes Hashimoto's. We just don't know what causes fibromyalgia. We just don't know why women are experiencing higher rates of chronic disease than ever in history. The list goes on and on and on of what we just don't know. And while it's true that most doctors don't because we're not taught how to connect the dots on women's health and our environment, our sense of safety, our experiences of trauma, our socioeconomic status, racism, etc. We do know that fewer than 20% of all medical conditions are caused by genetics, and at least 80% are due to preventable or reversible lifestyle causes. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Myths serve as powerful and inspiring stories and metaphors for life. They've also been used throughout history to reinforce political, religious, or other power structures as cautionary tales of what happens when we mere mortals go up against the gods. Medicine is, without a doubt, a cultural institution and power structure, and like other systems, it too has perpetuated myths that keep us believing in its power while disbelieving in our own. When I started on my path to becoming a midwife in 1981, it was, in part, to make a difference in the over-medicalization of birth that was already rampant at that time. I had no idea that my journey would be filled with women's stories of how they'd been mistreated, insulted, and demoralized by encounters with medical and healthcare professionals. It was these stories that provided the intense amount of energy it took to become a medical doctor as the working mom of four children. And along the way to becoming a doctor, I saw far too many doctor-patient and sometimes nurse or other provider-to-patient encounters that reinforced just how difficult a road it can be for women to navigate the healthcare system, given the many myths, biases, stereotypes, and attitudes about women and women's bodies that remain operational in modern medicine, driving so many women away from the answers and care we desperately need, or forcing us to play nice, to behave in ways that are inauthentic in order to get our basic medical needs met. Today, I'd like to break down eight prominent myths from it's all in your head to it's all your fault that are alive and well and are profoundly and sometimes dangerously affecting women's health, preventing countless women from receiving important diagnoses and timely treatment, sometimes for conditions that have proven life-threatening. It's led to women reporting symptoms of a heart attack, which may be different than the typical chest pain men experience, to be sent home with anxiety medication, the heart attack completely missed, to women with autoimmune diseases being told their fatigue and aching are just stress, 
to women doubled over with severe endometriosis pain or a ruptured ovarian cyst in the emergency department to be asked, are you sure it's not just that time of the month? And frighteningly has led to many deaths, including notably several recent cases in which black pregnant women, including a black pregnant physician, reported symptoms to their doctor and had those symptoms minimized, dismissed, or ignored. In fact, black women are much more likely to be affected by the very conditions that are most likely to be missed and diagnosed and are less likely to have pain and other symptoms taken seriously. I'm recording this episode so you can spot these medical myths in action to help you realize it's not all in your head and it's not your fault, to help you break free of them now. And I give you tools to get more health empowered so that before these myths ever prevent you from getting the healthcare you need, you can recognize them, spot them, and get out from under them. Medical myth number one, it's all in your head. If you've been made to feel or have been told that your symptoms could be all in your head, whether just stress, anxiety, or overwork, you're not alone. Medical gaslighting is now a well-documented phenomenon in women's healthcare and a topic I will be devoting an entire episode of my podcast to coming soon. Well into the 1970s, many common women's symptoms were attributed to personality types and women's emotional whims or described as hysteria, a term we now recognize as one that dismisses women as emotional, but which until the 1980s was a medical diagnosis that persisted literally from ancient Greek times as a diagnosable condition in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. It was originally believed to stem from what was called a wandering womb, that is, the uterus losing its moorings in the pelvis and wandering around the body, causing everything from melancholy to madness. For the record, the uterus does not do this. It is nothing but an insulting, outdated medical term with no basis in reality. Common women's gynecologic symptoms, for example, PMS, period pain, and menstrual migraines, have been part of a long history of psychologizing women's conditions. A few common examples of how very real medical conditions have been conflated with women's personalities and behaviors, particularly when those do not conform to expected behaviors for women, include things like medical migraines, for which women were described as having what was called a migraine personality that I actually talk about in a podcast on this, meaning that she was neurotic, frigid, and unable to accept her quote unquote womanly responsibilities. Chronically painful periods were considered a symptom of a personality disorder, and endometriosis was referred to as the career woman's disease because it was thought to affect women who were quote intelligent, compulsively perfectionist, anxious, and willing to place personal achievement over having children. In fact, one of the treatments recommended for endometriosis even into the late 1990s was getting pregnant. These attributions remained in the medical literature and wended their ways into diagnoses and patient charts well into the 1980s. Further, we were seen as using reproductive symptoms for personal gain as an excuse to miss work or ditch out on perceived womanly responsibilities, as they were called, from housekeeping and childcare to sex. It was also thought that we'd go from doctor to doctor until we got the diagnosis that suited 
our ulterior motives. The belief that women are hysterical, that our conditions are psychogenic in origin, persists today. Doctors far more commonly default to a diagnosis of psychologic origin in women than in men. However, instead of being told directly that it's all in our heads, we're now more often told things like it's depression, anxiety, or stress, or we're given the latest diagnosis, medically unexplained symptoms. And if you happen to tell your doctor that you're under stress or that you've had a mental health challenge in the past, this dramatically increases the likelihood that your doctor will chalk your current symptoms up to being psychogenic. There's even a name for this phenomenon. It's called a meaning shift. Women who have a mental health diagnosis in their chart, anxiety or depression, for example, which now is the case for about one in four women, are significantly more likely to have their physical symptoms blown off as psychological in origin. On top of that, going from one doctor to another because nobody's found anything wrong with you has been associated with an increased likelihood that this next doctor will also consider your symptoms psychological. This is compounded even more if you tell that doctor that you were frustrated by the previous doctor's lack of ability to diagnose you. Further, when the cause of a condition is unknown, as remains the case with so many things, even common things like PMS and endometriosis and most common women's pelvic pain syndromes, it's common for doctors to write it off as psychological. But lack of medical evidence for a condition doesn't mean it's not happening. It may just mean someone's either not doing the right testing or asking the right questions. In a recent study of women with endometriosis, one in 10 women was overtly told, it's all in your head. And 20% saw four to five doctors before receiving the proper diagnosis. In another study of women with endometriosis, many had struggled for at least three years before the condition was medically confirmed. And 50% of these had previously been told nothing was wrong by at least one doctor. In yet another study, 70% of teenagers with severe menstrual pain for no apparent reason, as might be described by a physician in a medical chart, were eventually found to have endometriosis. This problem is not specific to endometriosis, though it should be noted that at least one in 10 women have this condition, so it's a major issue in gynecologic health that it's being overlooked. It's endemic in medicine. As just one more of many examples, when it comes to autoimmune disease in the U.S., 75% of those at least affected are women, and it takes an average of 4.6 years and five doctors before getting a correct diagnosis. And along the way, many women are led to feel that their symptoms are not as serious as they're making them out to be, that there's nothing wrong, that it's just stress, that they are difficult patients, or commonly, some combination of all of the above. Chalking symptoms up to psychological causes not only causes women to feel self-doubt, but it often stops further inquiry into the real causes of the symptoms. It also pushes us toward trying to solve physical, medical problems solely with therapy, relaxation, antidepressants, or anti-anxiety medications, preventing or sometimes dangerously forestalling appropriate diagnosis and or earlier treatment. When a woman who's been dismissed eventually comes to me for medical care and I'm able to confirm or provide a diagnosis, her relief fills the room. I knew something was wrong. I've heard so many women say. 
And the validation that she's not crazy is often the first step in her reclaiming her power and her confidence. As one woman said, if just one doctor had really listened to me, I wouldn't have lost 20 years of my life to this. Bottom line, when we say something is wrong, our doctors must have enough respect to trust and believe us. If you're being ignored or dismissed and need tools to be more empowered in medical encounters, please listen to my podcast or read my article, Being a Good Girl Can Be Hazardous to Your Health. Anything I share with you in this episode is linked up over at avivaram.com forward slash medical dash myths, or you can just go to my website and search medical myths and you'll find this article that corresponds with the podcast and all the links are in the article in bold. So they're really easy for you to find. You can also grab a copy of my book, Hormone Intelligence which has an entire chapter dedicated to being medically empowered as a woman. Medical myth number two, it's normal for women to suffer. Who among us didn't grow up thinking that period pain was par for the course of just being a woman? Perhaps that PMS was just the way it is. Or maybe that sex is supposed to be painful. We've been taught to think it's just normal to need to curl up with a hot water bottle and Netflix, pop ibuprofen, and call it a day or two or more on the sofa before our periods. It's normal for doctors to tell women that painful sex is something they should just try to relax into or have a glass of wine first. And I'm not kidding here. These are common prescriptions, and at best, we're given an antidepressant for our PMS symptoms. Doctors not only reinforce discomfort, suffering, and outright pain as normal for women, they may be some of the biggest myth makers. According to a study by Healthy Women, one in three women who were later diagnosed with endometriosis were initially told by their healthcare provider that her pain was a normal part of being a woman. Women in pain are significantly more likely than men to receive a prescription for a sedative for their pain symptoms, suggesting that we just need to relax rather than the pain medication that might be indicated. And women wait an average of 65 minutes before receiving an analgesic for acute abdominal pain in most United States emergency rooms, 16 minutes more than men, which can feel like a lifetime if you're in severe pain. The assumption of normal keeps the medical profession and sometimes us from digging deeper when we have pain and leads to countless misdiagnoses of a number of conditions. For example, endometriosis, adenomyosis, pelvic pain syndromes, autoimmune conditions, and undertreatment of a wide variety of pain syndromes in women, including the severely painful condition sickle cell disease, which is overlaid with racism, a medically-based perception that Black women tolerate pain more, a myth perpetuated by slavers to justify abusive physical conditions, combined with the belief that Black folks are drug-seeking. And these myths persist until today and are alive and operational in hospitals and medical systems and doctor's offices. 
Gender biases in how pain is approached in our medical system can have serious, even fatal consequences. A study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2000 found that women are seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and discharged in the middle of having a heart attack, which also explains why women in most age groups have higher rates of death during hospitalization for heart attack than do men. Why isn't all this better understood? Those 70% of the people affected by chronic pain are women. 80% of studies are conducted on men or male mice. Yes, I'm just going to hit pause for us to chuckle over that one for a second. Men or male mice. Few studies have looked at gender differences in the experience of pain, but one did find that women tend to experience more severe pain and pain more frequently than men. Bottom line, if you're experiencing pain, don't worry about being considered a pain in the ass by your doctor. Be persistent and get a proper diagnosis and treatment. Your real pain is more important than their ass. Medical myth number three, women are complainers. Being stoic and ignoring our symptoms doesn't come from nowhere. From the time we're little girls, we're taught not to complain. Then as teens and adults, we learned that voicing our needs, expressing our dissatisfactions, our discomfort, our pain is whining, is complaining, and is unacceptable. So we don't complain. Instead, we tough it out and we tend to make our health and well-being the lowest priorities in our lives, putting our partners, children's, parents, friends, and even co-workers' needs before our own. This aversion to what is considered complaining is so ingrained in us that studies show that even we judge other women who complain harshly in the setting of online and other support groups. Many women delay getting help because they worry that they'll sound like they're complaining, and instead, they just assume that they're overreacting or even blame themselves for their symptoms. This is an example of medical gaslighting. I've heard many stories from women who discovered that bringing their husband, boyfriend, or father with them to medical appointments resulted in their symptoms being taken more seriously by their medical provider. As much as these women find it frustrating and infantilizing to need a male presence in the exam room, they're doing whatever it takes to get help in a system with terrifyingly little accountability and respect. As much as we may recognize that the medical industry is dismissing us and we'd often prefer to avoid it, we sometimes do want or we need the diagnosis that will validate what we know and feel is going on in our bodies and the care that ensues. So we endure the vulnerability and mistreatment playing the good patient game in hopes of answers and care. We avoid seeming like we're complaining by going silent, sucking it up, putting on a brave face. We learn somewhere along the line that voicing our real needs, expressing our dissatisfactions, our discomfort, our pain, is being too demanding. Further, we may intentionally downplay our symptoms and dress to appear credible as a patient. The problem is that studies show we can't win. If we downplay our symptoms, we run the risk of not getting any diagnosis. If we look too put together, we couldn't possibly feel that unwell, or we wouldn't have had the energy and the time to put on our nice clothes and our makeup. On the other hand, if we look too disheveled, we're thought to be seeking painkillers or an excuse not to work. Bottom line, we lose our inner compass while becoming hyper-aware of how we appear to others. A strange form of objectification we undergo as part of socialization as women 
and as part of interacting with the medical community. We're already darn tough enough. We shouldn't have to put up with pain, fatigue, doubling up maxi pads, or any other discomforts. It's really important to quiet the voice of doubt in your head that starts to believe that you're just complaining or overreacting. Not sure how to use your voice or too timid to do so? Check out my article, How to Talk to Your Doctor and Get the Healthcare You Need, or listen to the corresponding podcast, What's Sasha Fierce Got to Do With It? Again, these are linked up for you over at avivaram.com forward slash medical dash myths. Medical myth number four, you're a difficult patient. Where did you get your degree? Google University? That's a comment at least a dozen women in my practice were asked by their doctor when they presented their thoughts on what might be going on with them. The opposite of the chronic complainer myth, this is the difficult patient myth. Difficult patient is a real label articulated commonly by doctors or nurses given to, quote, that kind of patient, end quote, aka the woman who exerts herself in the doctor's office, labor room, or in any medical encounter, the one who challenges medical authority or simply asks too many questions. She's often a woman who has done her own research, formulated a hypothesis about what's going on, has her own opinions, wants to be proactive in her healthcare, and has an interest in trying alternative therapies. Medical racism adds a layer of intersectionality here. Any woman of color, and especially a black woman who expresses herself with any force, power, or a raised voice, may be stereotyped into the trope of a loud black woman, yet another way to dismiss, invalidate, and intimidate women of color from speaking up, and which keeps too many women of color from not only receiving respect, but also medical attention. None of us should be accused of being difficult when actually what we are is confident, intelligent, involved, and engaged in our health. And the reality is that sometimes we do have to be what might be considered difficult, pushy, persistent, or assertive. It's been statistically demonstrated that women who have had their conditions repeatedly dismissed may have to become confrontational or aggressive to advocate for themselves. It's actually what saved Serena Williams' life when she had symptoms of a potentially fatal blood clot in her lungs and was told by her medical team after she gave birth to relax that it was normal to feel discomfort. Further, women with medically unexplained disorders, as they're called, are far more likely to be dismissed, met with skepticism, and have negative experiences during medical encounters. Bottom line, while I know you'll be walking a tightrope between pushing for the care that you need and trying not to antagonize your medical provider, you have to advocate for yourself. Again, check out the articles and podcasts that I've mentioned so far. Medical myth number five, medical solutions are the only safe and reliable healthcare options. It would be nice to believe that current medical practice is based on the most current, accurate, and reliable information, but that's not always true. I can rattle off at least 10 practices, medications, or procedures that medicine was sure of just in the last few years that I was taught to apply as a medical student that turned out to be major medical whoopsies. Thankfully, being the heretic I am, I generally didn't apply any of these. Seriously. But we don't have to look very far back in history to find some examples of really big, serious medical whoopsies. Thalidomide, DES, the Dalcon Shield, and the Assure device are examples. 
The scary part is that each of these products was used before it was properly researched in actual human women, and many remained on the market far long after it was clear that they were causing major harm. Estrogen, in the form of hormone replacement, was promoted by a best-selling book to keep women forever young. In fact, that was the name of the book. By the 1970s, estrogen was being taken by over 30% of women in the U.S., yet the first full studies of its safety and effectiveness weren't conducted until 1991. A major study conducted in 2001 found that the risks of hormone therapy in women, particularly estrogen alone, but also estrogen and progesterone in combination, were far greater than anticipated, causing this study to be halted prematurely. These examples aren't all relics of the past either. Women's health is big business. Two of the top income-producing surgeries done in the U.S. today remain hysterectomies and cesareans. One in three women will have a hysterectomy, and one in three women will have a cesarean. Yet both surgeries are known to have major complications. With hysterectomy, at least 20% of these are considered medically unnecessary and increase a woman's complications of infections, hemorrhage, and even death. When done before natural menopause occurs, a hysterectomy also increases a woman's risk of bone loss, heart disease, and possibly dementia. In a study of the medical records of several thousand women, over a third were never informed about reasonable medical alternatives to hysterectomy. And I'm not talking about natural alternatives. I'm talking about medication alternatives that doctors should know. This included women in their 30s who ended up having the hysterectomy even though it's recommended medical guidelines to inform all women of alternatives before doing a hysterectomy whenever those alternatives are possible. And the study showed in these women, those alternatives were relevant. Yes, we all know people whose lives were improved or saved by a medication or surgery, and I'm so profoundly proud of being a physician. But medicine's primary credo of first do no harm is not necessarily what's driving healthcare today. And not everything being offered to us is good medicine. Diagnostic and treatment errors are a major problem women disproportionately face compared to men, and in worrisome numbers. According to a 2015 Institute of Medicine report, diagnostic errors are a serious, silent problem and a major blind spot in medicine. Yet there's little to no accountability for misdiagnoses, despite medical errors being the third leading cause of death in the United States. Though we have the most expensive healthcare in the world, we've ranked amongst the most abysmal for health outcomes in terms of safety and quality of care. Too often, conventional medicine practices leave us trading one set of symptoms or risks for another, often unnecessarily, and sometimes the new set has more serious consequences. Yet despite our abysmal statistics, we're perhaps the most arrogant medical system in the world. Most other nations acknowledge and even include a wide range of therapies in what patients may be offered or guided in using, from herbal medicines to acupuncture. Yet Western medicine in the U.S. not only has an extremely limited toolkit to offer us that includes primarily just drugs and surgery, but those seeking options that are outside of this box may be mocked, disparaged, and discouraged even when those therapies may have strong evidence behind them and be reasonable alternatives to a medication or a surgery at that time. 
Bottom line, a good medical provider discusses the risks, benefits, pros, and cons of all medical interventions with you, informs you of alternatives, and listens with an open mind when you ask for help and information about alternatives that he or she might not be knowledgeable about. That's the core of what I'm here to offer you, a third way, which is a balanced approach to knowing when you need medical care, when more natural alternatives or approaches are a reasonable option, what's safe, effective, and how to be empowered in making the choices that are best for your health. Medical myth number six, it's your fault, especially if you're overweight. As women, we're culturally hardwired to assume we're doing something wrong or causing our own problems. This is reinforced by the way we're spoken to in many doctors' offices. We're told it's our diet, lack of exercise, we're too stressed, we're working too hard, or it's simply that our female bodies are, well, sort of lemons that are just going to break down, especially if we don't care for ourselves optimally. Women who are overweight are especially likely to be told it's because they're fat, even if they're barely above what would be considered a medically healthy weight, which is a far wider range that conventional medicine has led us to believe in its misbelief about absolute certain connections between weight and basically all that ails us, and in the absence of evidence that for that individual specifically, their weight is what represents a major medical problem rather than just their inherent body size independent of the facts of their actual symptoms or disease. Fat shaming and fat blaming are common and not even necessarily hidden. A 2003 survey of 620 primary care physicians found that more than half of them viewed obese patients as awkward, unattractive, ugly, and non-compliant. A 2014 study found that 53% of women interviewed had experienced fat shaming by a medical doctor while a 2016 survey found that 45% of women canceled or delayed medical care because they feared being fat shamed. This is a very common problem in women with PCOS, which affects up to 10% of women. Many go undiagnosed for years because doctors view them as just fat. Physicians blame these women's excess weight on overeating and lack of exercise rather than looking at the root cause, which is that PCOS is a metabolic imbalance leading to an imbalance in our sex hormones and the associated symptoms. And in fact, it can even lead to binge eating disorder, which can then compound the problem. When it comes to Hashimoto's and weight gain, which is a common symptom, I had one woman who came to me from a previous medical practice that she'd been in, where the doctor told her that if she just controlled her fork to mouth problem, her weight problem would be a non-issue and refused to assess her hormones for Hashimoto's, which she in fact had. In fact, we know that BMI is an overrated assessment and further has been used as a medical weapon against women and people of color, blaming and shaming about weight rather than looking at the actual conditions at hand and also ignoring social and cultural aspects that can lead to weight problems, instead blaming the individual. One important step you can take when going in for a medical appointment is to join the movement of women across the country who are requesting that they not be weighed routinely in the doctor's office. You can learn more about the campaign and even download cards that read, please don't weigh me unless it's 
really medically necessary. And if you need my weight, please tell me why so I can give you my informed consent that you can bring to your appointment. The cards are available in English and Spanish, and I share the link back over at my website. Even the alternative medicine world can make us feel that our health problems are our fault, that if we just ate cleaner, did the right yoga class, took the right supplements, and had all the right thoughts, we'd feel great all the time. While there are practices that really can make a difference in your health, that's a far cry from being all your fault. Bottom line, your symptoms, your conditions, your diagnoses are not your fault, and your weight may have little or nothing to do with your symptoms. So put internalized shame and blame down and get the diagnosis you need. And if your doctor or any provider is blaming or shaming you, you can point out that you don't appreciate their bias. Medical myth number seven, we're just small men. The pharmaceutical industry exerts major influence over medical practice. In 2004, Richard Horton, the editor of one of the premier international medical journals, The Lancet, said, journals have devolved into information laundering operations of the pharmaceutical industries. It's these same medical journals that most doctors use to keep abreast of latest diagnoses and treatments that are then handed to you on a prescription pad. Yet when it comes to pharmaceuticals, which we should be able to assume are properly tested, safety is a major issue. Most medications have never been tested in women. Before 1990, only 13% of all pharmaceuticals were studied in women at all, and the situation has improved only slightly. Yet 70% of all prescriptions go to women, with half of all women over 50 on at least two and sometimes as many as 10 drugs for daily use. 90% of women are prescribed a medication during pregnancy. However, only 10% have been tested for safety on the developing baby, and 50% of those prescribed have actually been associated with fetal harm. Differences in how we metabolize medication puts us at major risk for adverse events compared to men. Yet research in women's health remains a low research priority. While women in science are trying to change the research agenda to include more women conducting and participating in studies, it doesn't change the risks of the existing medications we're using. Even common pharmaceuticals we've relied on for common symptoms, ibuprofen, for example, for menstrual cramps and migraines, has been associated with an increased risk of heart attack in women users, and just 10 days of use has been found to temporarily reduce fertility. The track record of safety for most pharmaceuticals may be less robust than we'd like to think. However, side effects and risks are universally downplayed while benefits are strategically exaggerated by pharmaceutical companies and then unwittingly by our prescribing practitioners. Bottom line, we're not just small men. If you start a medication and have symptoms or side effects, Remind your prescribing physician of this. And one step even up the river from that is when you are prescribed a pharmaceutical, ask your physician to make sure to adjust the dose and to inform you of what you need to know ahead of time. Finally, medical myth number eight, we just don't know what causes that. If you look in any conventional medical textbook, you'll find the phrase, we just don't know a whole lot. We just don't know what causes endometriosis. We just don't know what causes PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. We just don't know what causes Hashimoto's. We just don't know what causes fibromyalgia. 
we just don't know why women are experiencing higher rates of chronic disease than ever in history. The list goes on and on and on of what we just don't know. And while it's true that most doctors don't, because we're not taught how to connect the dots on women's health and our environment, our sense of safety, our experiences of trauma, our socioeconomic status, racism, etc., we do know that fewer than 20% of all medical conditions are caused by genetics, and at least 80% are due to preventable or reversible lifestyle causes. That doctors just don't know. Isn't that surprising? First of all, we're not looking for answers in the right places. And second of all, it's a well-known statistic that it takes on average about 17 years for medical practice to catch on to what science already knows. I've been unable to accept the answer, we just don't know, for over three decades now, and I've never stopped looking deeper for answers. If we were simply to look at the list of symptoms that can arise from trauma or being the victim of domestic violence, you'd see exactly what I mean. Nearly four decades of practice in women's health has shown me that there's a lot we do know about the root causes of many women's health conditions, and that science strongly validates that there's a complex web of factors that influence our health and a lot we can do about it. Bottom line, there's actually a ton that we do know, with literally thousands of published scientific studies that explain exactly what these reversible lifestyle factors are and just how they're impacting our health as women. Just because doctors don't know, doesn't mean that the answers aren't there. While answers may not always be right at our fingertips, we can look to a wider variety of reliable resources as citizen scientists and take ownership of lifestyle factors within our reach to improve our well-being. And we can push our providers beyond the answer to we just don't know into partnering with you to find answers and solutions. Until now, we've carried a legacy of silence, marginalization, dismissal, and embarrassment over our bodies. And when it comes to our reproductive health, it runs deep. This has done wonders for the medicalization of our bodies, serving the bottom lines of the medical industry. But it's done a great disservice for our health as women and to furthering much needed research in women's health more broadly. We're taught that it's impolite to talk about our bodies. We're never taught a good comprehensive lesson on what's normal and what's not. And then when we visit our doctors, we feel unheard and unseen. For so long, we've been encouraged to distrust our bodies and ourselves, and that distrust has only been enforced by the medical industry. The message that we get about our bodies is that they're unreliable, and we should just ignore our symptoms as much as possible. The harm done by medical biases against women and medical ignorance about women's bodies has led to millions of women having had medical conditions dismissed as stress, anxiety, depression, or as normal, with tremendous opportunity lost to make an early diagnosis and prevent suffering, loss, and harm. The truth is that we're not complaining when we tell our care providers about our symptoms, and we're not difficult when we advocate for our health. We're not fabricating symptoms to get a diagnosis, and we're not just fine when we say we're not. But breaking the myths does require us to do our part because it's not going to happen otherwise. We have to reject we don't know as an acceptable answer or simply accepting a diagnosis and medical treatment and moving on without asking about and being informed about the consequences. We have to stop being so polite when we're being doctor-splained too, my spin on the term mansplaining. We have to trust our bodies and our perceptions and our instincts. 
We have to use our power and our rights to advocate for ourselves, to ask questions and get another opinion and move on from a provider when needed. And sometimes we may have to get loud, however loud it takes to get heard and get the proper testing and treatment and care that you need, deserve, and have a right to. And that may save your life or the life of someone who you're helping to get their medical care. For tips on exactly how to do all these things, please read my articles, see my blogs, how to talk to your doctor and get the healthcare you need, read and bookmark and save this podcast episode. Make sure you share it with as many women as you can. Grab your copy of Hormone Intelligence, my book, if you want to go deeper. Your health may depend on being a bit of a badass. See you next time. Got me down, gonna lift it up. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.